I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back to the Rugby League Digest. I'm Michael Adams here with returning guest, uh, Rugby League and British Labour historian, writer and the author of the forthcoming Hope and Glory Rugby League in Thatcher's Britain. It's Anthony Broxton. How you going, mate? Uh, thank you for the plug for the book. Pleasure to be here again to chat um, all things British Rugby League, my favourite topic. <laughs> uh, well, let's start with the book because I- I'm just so pumped for this and I know there's going to be a lot of interest from our listeners as well. Just from seeing the cover and the blurb, uh, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm salivating for this. So can you tell us a bit about it? I'm glad. I'm glad you're salivating for it. Uh, I mean, <laughs> rugby league in Thatcher's Britain. It was. I mean, Thatcherism in the UK for the Australian listeners is still such an important part of British society. You know, people think that Thatcherism created this new world that led to Brexit. We had a prime minister in Liz Truss who lasted for 44 days, and her entire political philosophy was copying Margaret Thatcher. So, any book that sort of tries to look through. Uh, Britain through Margaret Thatcher and Thatcherism and Britain in the 1980s is always going to be interesting to people. But no one had ever looked at it through what is the most working class sport in Britain. So it was the perfect sort of opportunity for me when we had a general election where there was a lot of talk about how rugby league voters had switched from the Labour Party to the Conservatives. And there was a lot of debate in this country about what had happened to those people over the last 40 years, why they changed what they were about, who they were. There was just lots of, you know, people in London didn't really know about these people in Lee, Widnes, Wigan, Warrington, St. Helens. So I decided that I wanted to look through the changes, you know, through the story of Rugby League. And that took me to looking at the changes that happened. And, you know, without giving too much of the book away, it is a sort of story of two halves. You've got the, on the one hand, unemployment, the minor strikes, serious deprivation, lots of clubs struggling, you know, I look, I look in detail at a club like Featherston, for example. But on the other side, you've got probably the biggest boom the sport has ever had in this country when it reached its, you know, peak of most popularity um, with the international game, the Kangaroo Tours and the Australians who changed so much. So it's basically the story of, of Rugby League through 1980 to 1995, ending with the Super League War. So this bleeds us nicely into... <laughs> <laughs> your aspect and the sequel may be rugby league in blurs britain which will probably take us take us into the super league war but yeah it's good to chat today about the period just after the book 1997 because i think that you know 97 from a british perspective was probably one of the more, most interesting and one of those weird moments in history where anything was possible you know there was so much money in the game that the opportunities were there for the sport were they taken were they not well that's what we'll discuss today i suppose yeah, so you've you've segued beautifully into what uh, I want to talk about with you, uh, following on from our World Club Challenge episode, which which we will get to. So September, the book's out. 
it's actually been fast tracked. There's so much popular demand for this book. <laughs> uh, no, I think they want the publishers want to tap into the rugby league season, so it's looking like 17th of July, which is quite soon. Oh, awesome! So expect yeah. more promo. Um, yeah, there'll be lots more information. I'd love to come back at some point just to talk about the book for your uh, listeners. Yeah, yeah. And you know, yeah, I'm sure we'll talk about yeah, you know, the Australian launch and things like that, and I'll send you the link for Amazon. But yeah, uh, hopefully, you know, people are going to be very interested in this on on the down under. Uh, I, I know they will. I know they will. I'll give it the sell. There's lots of Australian content in this book. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you now, Anthony, anyone listening to this who has stuck around through 80 hours of rugby league minutiae is in it for the long haul. So I, I think there's a pretty much one-to-one ratio of people who will be interested. Um, let's get into it because something that we, we had our World Club Challenge Chapter, uh, I sent you my notes, you sent me some notes back. Just looking at your notes and looking at uh, what I've seen from the description of your book, uh, I, I can already see a, a disconnect in maybe how the World Club Challenge or this era of English Rugby League is seen through Australian eyes and how it's seen in England. And maybe that's partially because of the fact that most of my sources were Australian and, and we're dealing with this you know, nuclear event. So all the coverage of rugby league is is kind of filtered through this. But what Andy and I kind of posited as something of a nadir of English rugby league, it, it's actually almost the complete opposite from from your perspective. Well, people will potentially say that it was a nadir, but what we'll talk about um, hopefully over the period of time will be what the opportunities were, particularly, you know, in terms of profile and the money that came on board. I've actually got something that your listeners will not be able to see this, but you should be able to see this. This, yeah. <laughs> the 1997 Super League sticker book, right? So the year that we're talking yes. about, this is the first and last Super League sticker book that Merlin produced. I actually completed it for the seven-year-old. Every sti- <laughs> Every sticker... It's completed. So I'll, I'll post this on wow. Twitter as well. So this is so I got my mum to dig this out, right? And I think this is actually this is not just a frivolous nostalgic uh, point that I want to make. This was a symbol of where rugby league was at in nineteen ninety seven. Merlin had never shown any interest in doing rugby league sticker books before, but at the launch of the Super League in nineteen ninety six, an executive from Merlin was invited to a business meeting um, or launch or whatever it was by Maurice Lindsay and by the Super League. And he was so blown away by the businesses, the opportunities that Super League might bring, the Murdoch television deal, 87 million. And he was like, well, we've got to tap into this market that's going to be absolutely huge. And in the press release for the sticker book, which I found out recently, um, he talks about football has a fan culture. They love stickers. Rugby League is probably the only other sport that we would do a sticker book for because it's got a similar fan base. And if you actually look at the back of this um, sticker book, there is an advert the Super League milk. And that was the official milk of the Super League that you could buy in <laughs> Tesco, Safeway, Summerfield. Some of these supermarkets don't exist anymore. And so this was basically the point I'm trying to make is Rugby League in Britain was about to enter the most commercial period it's ever had and was ever likely to, you know, and, and had ever had previously. Um, you basically had, on the back of that decision to go to summer, a huge amount of business interest in the Super League. Bradford, for example, signed this deal with Compaq, who made computers worth over £2 million, they said, over you know a three-year period, which had never been seen. It was the biggest sponsorship deal 
in in the sports history. Salford signed this deal with Kiss Radio. Warrington had a deal with McDonald's, Wigan. They they were moving towards big, you know, blue chip sponsors as well. So, just on the back of this idea of summer and what could potentially happen, lots of business interest came into the game. So that's basically the starting point for the nineteen ninety seven season. Was that there was a moment where Super League clubs believed that they could become as big as Premier League football clubs. That sounds ludicrous to suggest now we know how big the Premier League has become. And then, you know, we'll probably go on to talking about it. More business people came in, people like Richard Branson. But yeah, the World Club Challenge that sort of it comes towards the end of that season is, you know, for businesses, a huge opportunity to get themselves on that, you know, global marketplace. And you, you mentioned collecting those stickers as a seven-year-old. Do you have any memories of the, the series itself? Well, actually, it's funny you should say that. I'll, I, I, in the middle of the sticker book, there is a... Uh, this is not great for listeners, but... Uh, there is a wall chart where you could fill in every fixture. So I could actually pinpoint the game where I dropped off interest in this tournament, right? And it was, <laughs> and it was Monday the 16th of June. I wrote Cronulla Sharks 48, St. Helens 8. Brisbane Broncos 36, Wigan Warriors nil, and I never filled in another fixture. So, <laughs> but I mean, I remember the World Cup Challenge. I remember the, the games. I went to, I think I went to one game and it was Wigan v Canterbury. And I remember, even as a child, it felt different um, to a regular season match. Um, the atmosphere was different. It was a different club you'd never heard of. There was a, some sort of buzz around it. And I think for people of my generation, you know, people in their early 30s, there is, there's not many rugby league supporters my age that don't love the Australian NRL. And I wonder whether there was some sort of influence in those early days that introduced us to these Australian players. You had kangaroo tours, you had, you know, Great Britain and, and all things that happened after. Then you get the NRL on television. But, you know, I just it's an interesting thought experience. If, if the 1997 World Cup Challenge had not happened, how many young people have not been exposed? Because in the sticker book, for example, there's a whole... Uh, two-page spread on the Australian players that you need to watch out for, and there's like Brad Six and Bradley Clyde and Laurie Daly and and whoever, um, which is sort of like unheard of, you know, in British rugby. Why would they be interested in Australian if this World Cup Challenge? So you can see the sorts of beginnings of this new globalized league that was a genuine belief for people like Maurice Lindsay uh, uh, and Rupert Murdoch and. And, and the Super League people in, in the mid-90s. So obviously now it seems quite ludicrous. We know what happens with the scores and what's happened to the NRL since and Super League's fortunes have declined. But at that very moment, there was all the chance that this could be a, you know, a change would be forever. Yeah, and, and I think to maybe not to the same extent, but I, I definitely think there was a promise in, in Australia as well. And even as, as I've mentioned many times, even as someone who boycotted Super League, just seeing like little highlights on the news, whether it was you know Terry O'Connor and Gordon Tallis getting into it or whatever it might be, it just seemed really cool to me. And then in the course of my research, looking at Super League magazine, seeing you know Bradford players on the cover and all this coverage of the English game, I, I think the promise was there. What happened in Australia is that it was, I mean, there were several death knells of Super League, so I'm not going to put all the blame on the World Club Challenge, but it, but it certainly was, was the final nail in the credibility of Super League here. Do you think it had a similar effect in England or was it maybe more expected or maybe not as big a problem? It's, it's a really interesting one. Before the World Club Challenge began, there were certain clubs that saw this as a huge opportunity to boost their own profile. Bradford is a perfect example of that. They 
you know, to give a little bit of context to Bradford, in my, in in Hope and Glory, Bradford are an absolute joke of a club. You know, they play at Oddsall, there's 3,000, 4,000, it's horrible conditions. They sell Ellery Hanley in the mid-1980s to Wigan because they can't even attract people to come and watch him play. They swap him for a couple of random players and sign someone from Rugby Union and it all goes badly. Um, but when the move to summer comes, which they'd advocated, they are the perfect club for the summer era because they've got this bowl of a stadium, Oddsall, where people can come in, they copy, they take some ideas or borrow some ideas from Keith Lee Cougars, you know, become the Bradford Bulls, copying the Chicago Bulls. And the World Cup Challenge for them, they talk about, they hype it up, they hire bands to, to, to pow and some other artists, and they're like, this is going to be our announcement on the world. And it doesn't play out like that. They are one of the clubs that you you know, you know talked about that can't, get, can't lay a finger on the Australian players. But that didn't have any effect whatsoever on Bradford's trajectory. In that season, 97, they go on to win the title for the first time and go on to become one of the dominant uh, clubs in the early Super League era. So I think quite quickly, clubs like, if you use Bradford as a case study, the World Cup Challenge didn't really mean much to them. Once they're out of it, there's like, well, that didn't work, but we won the Super League and our attendance is going up. It's, it would have been nice to compete with these, but there was a there was a philosophy in rugby league in the, in the eighties, which is probably a little bit lost now. But there was a sort of overarching aim, and this sort of comes out in Hope and Glory, that one day we'll match the Australian standards and we'll beat them and we'll be as big as them again. And things like the World Cup Challenge were often seen as another stepping stone for rugby league to become as good as Australia. So Maurice Lindsay, for example, you know, was always of this philosophy that, you know, I can't remember the exact quote, but it's sort of like, you'll learn through the pain of this. He'd been at Wigan when they'd been relegated. They, and he sort of reveled in the fact that he had to rebuild them and they'd go through as much pain as possible to renew. And so, so that welcome challenge for the British sides, had it happened again in 98, 99 and 2000, who knows how they would have closed the gap had it been a, you know, top four, top four, top four. What it was in terms of a concept, and we can go into the sort of details, was it sort of illuminated the real problems that rugby league had, you know, trying to quickly change itself from an amateur sport to a pro sport in a in a very short period of time with lots of money. You know, you end up signing lots of Australian players and lots of other things that happen. And the World Cup Challenge essentially just emphasised how much they had to do you know, to make up that ground. But it was still an ambition for the British game at that point, which it probably isn't now, I'd say. Hmm. Yeah, and, and I guess from this, this is something that in, in our chapter, Andy was, you know, quite keen to stress is that how could they be expected to compete? And, you know, when, when the professionalism had just been so recent and there's no poking money and there's all these other other factors. You've got this small corner. It's I think you touched on was... some of it in the episodes, this mythology of like British crowds and conditions and British spirit that, you know, and I, I saw, uh, you know, some Andy Farrell, for example, in the run up to the World Cup Challenge was like, no, they'll get a shock when they see how far we've developed. And Kieran Cunningham said similar things. I think there was probably an expectation that when the World Cup Challenge happened in the UK, that there would be some sort of leveler, leveler. Because, for example, in the eight, you know, 86 and 90, Australia had always beaten the British club side. But they'd been run quite close sometimes by teams like Oldham and, you know, Wigan always would run them close and Widnes run them close and St. Helens. And so you're thinking, well, St. Helens v Hunter Mariners or whatever the fixtures it was. Well, why can't they on, on one day, you know, do it? And had the big clubs potentially 
you know, if Wigan had won, well, Wigan won Cup 2 matches, didn't they? But if Bradford had competed, St. Towns had competed and Leeds had competed, um, I know Leeds were sort of in a bit of a transition at the time, but had the Bickles competed, there might not have been much, much, it, it might not have m- mattered as much if Paris Saint-Germain were getting beaten by 70 points. Because you could say that the, is the fact that the top clubs, and they were good club teams, like that Bradford team was incredible. You can't really believe that they got battered that, by, yeah. that badly. But I mean, that can happen, right? In a, in a cup tournament, you have one bad day and... Mm. So I don't know whether it shows how, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the difference. I can see why some people thought that the British culture would do better, even though it was a short mm. period of time. So broadening out, you know, from the World Club Challenge, your book ends at ninety-five. The Murdoch money has come in, and so this this was a, a real change in in English rugby league and. Again, this comes back to, I think, my framing in terms of the Australian sources. But from my end, I see a lot of, you know, question marks about whether, you know, there was regret over the sale, whether summer rugby worked. Do you think from an English perspective, it was a settled question? Like, can you put it into context where English rugby league was? Yeah, it's it's a really good point, that one, because... The, the the final chapter of my book, again, another plug for the book, um, ends with this civil war, essentially, between, literally between Maurice Lindsay, the individual, and every other supporter in the in the sport. Now, that is, uh, that's probably not correct. But in the main, the majority of, so let's give it some context. When the Murdoch deal arrived in 1995, which is seen as the saviour of the sport, and, it, you know, they take advantage of this what that's happening in Australia for a one-time uh, offer of a Euro of a European league. Mergers are on the table: Hull, OKR, Featherstone, Castleford, Wakefield, Warrington, and Widnes. Um, I think there's there's probably some others I've just forgotten. And the resistance to that is essentially across the game. Even fans of like Wigan are looking at it and going, "This is pretty undemocratic." Jack Robinson, who I'm not sure if he features much in your, we we mentioned him in one of the. He's episodes, sort of yeah. the guy who's got to carry the can from the Lindsay era and sell all the Wigan players and sell Central Park to pay off the debts. Even he says we would not merge with St. Helens if we were offered that. I can understand, and he's the biggest advocate of Super League along with Bradford and some others. And essentially as my book sort of um, shows, the people power of Featherstone Rovers fans coming together with Wakefield fans and Casper fans to stop it happening, essentially, you know, was 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 a, was a, was the people sort of kicking back against this idea that you can take, you've took everything else from us in the 80s, the mines are gone, the, 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 the high street's decimated, and you're going to take my rugby league team as well. We're going to fight back against that. And they won. You know, Mur- Murdoch... And Lindsay, and to Lindsay's credit, he managed to get the same amount of money, actually got more money than he was initially offered for a basically the same competition we had before with Paris and Summer, which is insane. Honestly, this is one of the, the most underrated facts of, of the whole thing for me, is that they, they took the money on the basis of all these mergers, and then the mergers don't go ahead, but they've still got the money, they've got more money, and... Like it, it's it's really remarkable, and we can talk about Lindsay more in detail. Was you know such a divisive figure in the game, you know, because he had such a, a I would call it a loathing for a certain way of running rugby league, and he you know had the sort of entrepreneurial enterprise. He wanted rugby league, and we'll maybe talk about his expenses. 
that was a symbol of where he wanted the sport to be in the elite, in the Premier League, spending lots of money on players, wages, administrators, staff, best sponsors, best stadiums, all the rest of it. And he came into it, you know, he basically hit the brick wall of the supporters who essentially wanted it to remain as it was and didn't want to lose Featherstone and that identity. And, you know, those debates play out in wider society still in Britain, you know, which, you know, which is probably for another podcast. But, um, Going back to the point about Lindsay, to get that money, he was a gambler and understood the art of the negotiation better than any sort of rugby league person, uh, certainly in that period. And he recognised that Mur- Murdoch and Packer War, there was time where British rugby league could basically exploit as much as possible. And Murdoch needed that you, the British rugby league to sign up for it. And even so, when it became looking like the mergers were not going to happen, and for about a month, Lindsay was adamant that they would. And was defending Rupert Murdoch and saying, I'll die in a ditch for Super League, essentially. He U-turned and just said, oh, it's not going to happen now. But we're still going to get the money for it because you need us to sign up for it. And I can't sign up for it without the mergers not happening. I also can't sign up for it unless you give me £10 million to give to the smaller clubs. And they sort of just wrote a blank cheque for it, which is... It, that That is a one-time offer. I think even at the time, people were like... And this is sort of where we sort of head to the debate in ninety seven. There was a recognition throughout that season. How on earth are we ever going to get that that amount of money again in the year 2000? You know, you can accelerate it and market it and do all the things you want. But that was essentially a one-time offer to basically, you know, in, in, in the middle of a war, where, which you've discussed many times. So I don't need to go into that. But yeah, it was it was a stroke of genius to get that cash. Um, so basically, we've sort of gone off the point. But that, that's the context of where the Super League happens. So there's this battle over... The actual creation of Super League, Lindsay, although he would not claim it publicly, lost that fight. The Super League happens in 1996, and Super League 1996. I don't know how much you've done on that. It wasn't. It it was interesting because St. Helens ended Wigan's dominance, and it was in summer, and London are on the rise. But it 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 is a bit of a letdown for a lot of people. Attendances aren't massively up, barring Bradford. All the eyes are focused on 97. Because of the World Cup challenge and this being the moment where you've got a Champions League, you've got the sticker books, you've got the the milk, you've got Richard Branson coming into the sport, you've got a deal, you've got a new person who comes on board, I can't remember his name, but he worked for a company called M&C Saatchi, which was an offshoot of Saatchi and Saatchi. And they start this promotional campaign called um, Moving On, Moving Up, that goes in, that is basically advertising Super League as a total, you know, new era of rugby league. So 1997, although, yes, I'd say there was still grievances over what had happened, there was an ex- acceptance that this was going to be the future and that summer. There was no more debates about whether summer was going to, we were going to go back to winter. There were debates, as we'll probably talk about, about whether the clubs would emerge and whether there would be, um, you know, introduction of a playoff system which happens at the end of the season to mirror the Australian tour but going back to winter game no that was settled by this point yeah and I guess despite or maybe because of what you've just talked about it was a a really fraught time for rugby league administration the administration and Lindsay in particular had his uh, position challenged and and a lot of um a lot, a lot of interesting stories came out of that. You, you mentioned the expenses, which one of one of my I think this says a lot about Lindsay. But there was a lot of questioning over the uh, 
how much is over two hundred thousand dollars on personal expenses. I, I've got an itemized list of this. So nearly a hundred thousand on travel and hotels, uh, two thousand on videos for his hotel room, five thousand on hiring a chauffeur-driven limous- limousine, despite the fact that he has a Jaguar Sovereign, uh, forty thousand to replace the Jaguar with another Jaguar, uh, and thirty thousand in credit card payments. Uh, a, a lot of high-end restaurants in London. And I, I love Lindsay's comment on these expenses. He said, I like driving a Jaguar and I don't think the chief executive should catch the number 33 bus. I mean, that's, that, that quote, and there are plenty of quotes like that in my book for another book for the book. It just sums up Maurice Lindsay, you know, 100%. He had a vision for rugby league that was so far removed from what it had been in the 80s. Um, in the in the uh, in the seventies and in the early eighties, where he he, you know, he essentially created someone like Ellery Hanley. I mean, there's a lot of talk about Ellery Hanley being, you know, someone at the RFL once told me that Ellery Hanley sold himself. He didn't need media, and on the one hand, that's true. He didn't speak to the media, but it was Maurice Lindsay and the wing and boss who was basically like, we need to essentially create the professional player. We need to pay them enough so that they don't need to work and that they can be the athlete superstars of the future. And he recognised that that was the way that sport was going. That's why Wigan was so successful in the 1980s. And if you go back and you look at the Sean Edwards, Ellery Hanley, Joe Lyde and all these people, they all treat Maurice Lindsay as the most important person in, in, in their success. All that happened on the pitch that they achieved was amazing. But they look at the things that he'd created, the conditions. They all, A lot of them got very rich off the back of him as well, which, you know, Wigan paid the price for in the 90s. But, so his worldview was about making rugby league an elite sport bigger than football. You know, he would always talk about we should be bigger than football and we can do it. Now, some would say that that's not possible. And it's been proven, you know, when the Murdoch money comes in, that with all the money in the world, you can't make people just follow a sport. You know, London, Paris, Gateshead, all these areas can chuck as much money as you want. But if people have no history in the game, they're not... They're not, there's no roots in the community for sport. Why would they watch rugby league when they've got football, cricket, tennis, boxing, whatever? Um, so the, Lindsay believed that administrators should be as well paid as the top executives in the business world. You know, he was very comfortable with himself getting paid a large salary. And he, I mean, there's, there's a, I was reading about this expenses thing and this, Lindsay was so Machiavellian and people thought it was so Machiavellian. There was rumours that he'd actually leaked that story himself, that he had given that to the Sun newspaper because he wanted people to know that the person who's winning rugby league was so rich and had such an expected but that this must be a big sport. And someone put that to him and he was like, that's even too Machiavellian for me. Because he was quite, I think, <laughs> quite annoyed that a Rupert Murdoch newspaper had put this out because it was the Sun who splashed on it. And it sort of shows where rugby league was at in the, in the mid-90s that, you know, Morris Lindsay was such a huge figure that the Sun could run a huge expose on his expenses, and it would be a dominant story. Um, and and obviously because of the colour, you know, of, of, of what of, you've illuminated that story, the money on the Jaguars and the videos. I mean, he would argue, look, I spend a hell of a lot of time going around the country trying to recruit people to put money into this sport, top businesses, the people at Merlin who we discussed at the beginning. I need to be staying in the top hotels. I need to be eating in the top restaurants. I need to, you know, and if I get some downtime at the end and I spend 800 quid on videos, 
it's money well spent. Now, you're going into an argument there about should we invest in administrators and marketing or should we invest in players and stadiums? And that debate will go on forever. But the philosophy was the best-in-class administrators. That's what attracted people like Richard Branson to the game. That's what attracted people like Maurice Lindsay to the game. And that was where he was at in that period. So, yeah, I think that's really interesting. I think that illuminates his character. I think it's a really good... Uh, thing that you found there, which I didn't know about actually before you raised it. All right, cool. I, I, I want to turn to London, but I, I just had a, had a had a question for you. Just while you were talking, I, I just thought of it. So in some ways, English Rugby League was lucky. They were like collateral beneficiaries of this war. And, you know, Rupert Murdoch just whipped out 187 mil from his back pocket to help his cause in Australia. But does that happen without Lindsay, without someone who turned Wigan into a glamour club, a club that was seen as equals in Australia, without his taking over of the English Rugby League and, and making all the, the positive changes that you've mentioned? Does it happen without a figure like Lindsay? I mean, this is what Hope and Glory is essentially about. It's, 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 if you take the period of Rugby League from 1980 to 1995, which the book covers, there is such a radical transformation in terms of playing standards, celebrity, media profile, the way the game is covered, you know. So, you know, take it back to 1982 in the Kangaroo Tour. The genuine is, a, there is a sense that, A, British Rugby League is finished. It will never recover from this embarrassment. There is no way that it could ever reach those standards. Its players are not fit enough. They're part-time. No one's really watching it. The, you know, the media aren't covering it. And there's a lot of things that happen in the period in between, but, you know, Wigan are one of them. The revival of the Great Britain team, plays like Ellery Hanley, Martin Afire, all these sort of people. That, and, and there's a massive push to essentially make the game quite aspirational, which again comes into conflict with what's happening around rugby league communities at the time where you've got the minor strike and you've got unemployment and you've got serious deprivation and you've got recession after recession. And But rugby league, bizarrely, because of people like Lindsay, because of people like David Oxley, because it started to take test matches to bigger stadiums, because they've got sports editors on side, because they're actually watching the product and going, wow, this is actually really good. One of the other things that happen is British Rugby League starts to go out and recruit top-line rugby union players. Jonathan Davis, John Gallagher, you know, later on Scott Quinnell, Inga Twigamala, absolutely huge names in rugby union. And when the Daily Telegraph and the Daily Mail and the Times see their best players going to Rugby League, they have to write about it. And people are naturally interested in Rugby League. What is this? What is what is the appeal of this sport? And it is it's money. It's money is the appeal, and and professionalism and Rugby League being way ahead of Rugby Union in terms of standards and spectacle and all the rest of it. We're pushing British sport into the professional era, you know, Wigan are particularly, and the Great Britain team are making, you know, rugby league into elite, big tier sport, you know, box office games at Old Trafford and Wembley, which wasn't really happening before that period. So when Sky come along in 1990, uh, it's actually BSB first, before Sky, BSB, they go, well, there's a sport on the rise. No one's covering it. It's relatively cheap. We can take it for our, you know, terrestrial tv and see what happens um and then you know Lindsay's, um you know had good relationships and had pushed for this quite hard as i outlined in the book so when it comes to 1995 
it's already there. It's already on Sky. This is what happened in Australia. So I think you're right. This Sky deal would not have happened. I mean, it's hard to say whether Rugby League would have developed without Morris Lindsay the way it did. It certainly probably wouldn't have gone as fast as it did. And yeah, I, I'd be there for saying that without Lindsay and without the change of the 1980s, that wouldn't have happened. But then again, you know, I would say that. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I mean, nothing really emphasises this, you know, fast and these, you know, rapid changes than like Richard Branson coming in in 1997 with, with London. Um, can, can you talk a bit about the London experience at this particular point in time? Yeah, I think it's probably actually important to give it a bit of context as well because, you know, Rugby League had no profile in Fulham, um, in London at all until Fulham arrived in 1980, which was a huge sort of turning point, um, even though it sort of fizzled out quite quickly. For one season, they were an absolutely uh, dominant news story in, in the British sports media. When Fulham arrived and they've got, a, I don't know if you know a guy called Colin Welland, but he's like a celebrity... Uh, rugby league, British rugby supporter. He was, the, I think, he wrote the screenplay for the film *Chariots of Fire*. He was a British actor, mm-hmm. and he basically was the front man, along with a few football players, for this project in 1980. And the attendances were like 10,000 in the first season, and there was a real sense that rugby league had arrived in London, and this was going to be the next big thing. Now, over the course of the 1980s, it doesn't happen. They, because of promotion and relegation, for example, they end up in the second division, and then they can't get up. And they, at the beginning of the decade, they're actually in a similar position to Wigan in the second division. But obviously Wigan go on one course and they go on another. By the 90s, Maurice Lindsay, when he becomes the chief executive of the RFL in 1992, he believes that London is going to be the salvation of the game and is is the number one focus and where it should put its attention. You have the 1992 World Cup final at Wembley, which is probably, in terms of British Rugby League, the most popular it's ever been. You know, you have billboards of Martin Afire, you've got a campaign with Nike, you've got a full house at Wembley for the World Cup final, it, Great Britain, Australia, and everyone, you know, everyone is interested in how, it, how it's going to turn out. Off the back of that, there's a sense that, well, why don't we just have a London club? What is often forgotten from that is that the day after that World Cup final there's a match at Crystal Palace where London were playing at the time I think 500 people turned up so it was like you can't even get the people who were down in, in London to watch this big game to watch this second division game now this is a debate within rugby league circles that continue forever until London Broncos are at their elite level why would people in London go and watch second tier rugby league it's such a competitive marketplace that you want the best. You can go and watch Tottenham, you can go and watch Arsenal, you can go and watch whatever. With the arrival of Richard Branson, there was a sense that they would now have the money to compete at that top level. And that's basically where the excitement came. Um, To give a bit of context from Richard Branson as well, he was the number one celebrity businessman in Britain at that time. A few months before he buys London Broncos, Tony Blair works unbelievably hard to try and get Richard Branson's endorsement for New Labour because it was seen as the Labour Party is now becoming the party of business. If we get Richard Branson to endorse us, we're we're in with a fighting chance here. Um, I can't remember if he does actually endorse them in the run-up, but he certainly endorses them afterwards. And on election night, he's on the BBC television coverage saying, I'm Britain's most successful businessman. I'm going to back Tony Blair. We need to get behind him. So to have that figure interested in rugby league is 
game changing for people. Like they look at it and think because also the thing about Branson, I don't know how much I'm sure the Australian listeners know, you know, who he is and what he's about. He was a yeah, sort yeah. of publicity machine. You know, like he just knew how to get himself in the media. Virgin wasn't just you know the the air balloon. He had a coat. It was Coca Cola. It was um, lots of other things. The Virgin Megastore was on every high street. You know, it was a brand. It was a lifestyle. And if you had him coming into rugby league to sort of promote London, wow, the opportunities are absolutely massive. And the interesting thing, bringing it back to the World Cup Challenge, is that when Branson buys London, he says the thing I'm looking forward to most is getting the Virgin brand out there on the global stage. The opportunities for London Broncos, you know, virgined up to be playing in Sydney, that's that's a new marketplace for him as well. You could, there's not another sport you could really get that in. And the Rugby League, one of the quotes that I just pulled out, they said, uh, Richard Branson bought London Broncos because he's a winner, not a loser. So I think that's exactly where the sport is at. They're thinking, we've got a winner on board. Um so in 97, just look at that moment in time, that's when he arrives and that's where the people think, well, wow, this, this is a huge opportunity. And it was perfect timing with the Broncos already on the up and yet you had the, the, the Brisbane Broncos connection and an, an incredible season of on-field success. Why aren't we talking about London Broncos as a, a rugby league powerhouse to this day? That's, I mean, that's such a huge question. Um I think the, I mean, I think the problem. Well, with '97, there's clearly a window of opportunity there. I think they finished second in the table. They signed Sean Edwards. They signed Martin Afire, who were obviously the most recognisable rugby league players in the country. And to have them playing at London is a massive coup and a massive coup for them sort of people who wanted to get rugby league in the London media. Over time. And this is basically that the, the money just sort of runs out for to, to run those big marketing campaigns. We talked about MNC Saatchi, you know, doing a publicity campaign. Had that had worked and translated, you know, into mass support for London Broncos, they'd won a title, they'd won a Challenge Cup. Who knows whether they would have stuck around and whether they'd been able to, to get the money to do it. One of the problems that has happened for London Broncos and why they're, you know, not successful and they're now in the second tier playing at Wimbledon in front of, you know, less than a thousand people is that they've moved around so much they have literally no identity whatsoever so i'm i'm i live you know near where the broncos play they 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 play in wimbledon now but they used to play in crystal palace they played in barnet they were they they rebranded as harlequins so they were at ealing for a while as well so it's they've never had a consistent fan base they've also never tapped into the huge expat community in london you can't believe that they haven't managed to get, you know, I speak to Australians, you know, I've got lots of Australian friends. They haven't got a clue that there's rugby league being played in London. They assume that it's happening up north. You're like, well, there is the London yeah. Broncos as well. You're like, what, really? And they play in South London where there's just, you know, so many Australians in Clapham and Tooting and the rest of it. So I, this, the, I've actually written an article about this that, that um, you know, may go as a sort of an accompaniment to it, where there were so many missed opportunities for London Broncos Um IMG are now coming into it and they've identified London as a growth area. We haven't seen at all um, what the actual plan would be for that. One of the things that would you think imagine would have to happen would there would have to be a franchise for it. Look at Melbourne Storm in Australia. Could that have happened without it being subsidised or without promote with promotion and realization in play from the beginning? 
you know, the the first few years they would have struggled. Um, well, I know they won the title, but you know what I mean? It's sort of, it, the Catalan Dragons, for example, you know, finished bottom in their first season. If we'd had relegation for them, where would they be? They nearly got relegated in the million pound game five years ago. It was only because they won that match that they didn't. Would they then have been in a grand final two years later? Definitely not. So if you want to build an expansion club like London, you have to get rid of relegation, which is... Well, we think that's what's going to happen with with IMG's proposals, um, but whether yeah, they, yeah. whether they invest in London or not, that we haven't got a clue. They haven't said. This is this is an eternal mystery to me, and again, it's just a different sporting culture. Because for me, expansion is fundamentally at odds with promotion and relegation. And if if you want to grow the game, you, you I, I think you need to to have a different model. But it seems so. Uh, so wrong to the English sporting fan to have the the closed shop, as as they always talk about. So, is there a way forward to to retain the English sporting culture, but do expansion in a real way? I think in '97, for example, it's the first time that they do talk about um, bringing in the franchise, the franchise, and it's one of the debates that's happened. You know, um, because to give it to give it some sort of context before that. Maurice Lindsay was a huge advocate of streamlining the game, getting rid of certain clubs, focusing on the elite. I can't remember at this time whether he advocated for promotion and relegation, but I would imagine that he was in favour of getting rid of it. And that's essentially, you know, the perennial question in rugby league circles that we always come back to. On the one hand, we're obsessed with having jeopardy. Uh, we, We don't want dead rubbers. Um, we want to make sure that the you know the team that finishes bottom in the mid table has got something to play for. At the same time, we're constantly worried about whether we've got enough clubs, whether it's sustainable, whether we can bring in a French club. But and it all comes back to a lack of vision and strategy from the top. You know, you need someone at the very top of the English game to say, "This is what we want to do." Okay, so do you want to expand into London? Why do we want to expand into London? Is there a market there? Do we want to go to Newcastle? Why do we want to go to Newcastle? In the 97, for example, I don't know if you came across this in your research, but there's talk of a team in Glasgow yeah. um, and the Hunter Mariners were going to be part of it or there was going to be some link up between the... Where's that come from? You know, there's no evidence to suggest that anyone in Glasgow would ever be interested in rugby league. But I suppose that 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 came into the spirit of the age as well. In, the, in 1997, there was a belief that we had the best product. We were an elite sport. And if you could just take it, and market it, and put it in front of people, it will succeed. I think we're now at a place of 2023 where that optimism has gone from the British game. The British game now is about survival, even with IMG on board. And I don't think there's anyone, even the most optimistic person in the rugby league world, who would say, if we take our product to Bristol, for example, or Birmingham, they'll lap it up. We know it's so competitive now, and there's so much else happening you know, around the sporting landscape that it isn't just going to be enough on the product alone. People come and watch it. They'll go, that's great. Are they going to buy a season ticket to watch a club? I think there's, that, that, that idea is certainly gone now. So that may open the door to more franchising and scrapping of relegation over time. But at the minute, we're still in the position of no identity, no real vision for the future and sort of just waiting for something to happen. And, and I, th- I think there's parallels with the ex- Australian experience at this point in time, I'm talking about in the you know mid to late 90s, where you had this vision for expansion, you had Adelaide, you had Perth, 
when Super League ends and it's rationalised, it's not Adelaide and Perth that are kept. It's the Sydney clubs that hang on for dear life. And, you know, there's some mergers and Souths get kicked out and come back in. But expansion is like a victim of this. And you mentioned Glasgow at this point in time in 1997. I also saw references to Birmingham, Dublin, Cardiff. But at the same time as this is going on, the, the threat of amalgamations aren't going away. And there's there's talk of, of expansion and a new model, but it doesn't happen. And then Paris, who were, were so, you know, open Super League in 1996, and it was this was the new world. Suddenly Paris fall apart in just the... the I say comical, but it's it's like, it's horrifically tragic that this is how Paris ended. And, and it's, I mean... It's the the Paris story in itself was sort of, you know, again it's sort of so they had to you know the 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 Paris was chosen because I mean what an opportunity you know if we just strip it back and look at it Paris Saint Germain the brand you know they've now got you know Paris Saint Germain football team is one of the biggest brands at one point in our history rugby league had that brand within its British domestic game playing Workington Oldham all these sorts of teams. Um, Again, it goes back to Lindsay and the sort of world that he wanted. It's great. There was a guy called Ian Clayton who was basically a huge advocate, uh, a, a huge frontman for the resistance to the mergers in, in, in 1995. And I talk about him in the book uh, because he basically represented the fan, the fan voice. And he, he was very good at sort of putting it into context for the history of the game and also what the fans wanted from it. He genuinely believed that Featherstone could revive itself as a town so that it could one day potentially compete with Paris as a tourist destination. Now, that might sound utterly ridiculous, but within, you know, his lifetime, he'd seen the coal mines close and the the shops go away and think the rest of it. And if you took the rugby league team as well, you would lose everything that that area had. But as long as you had the rugby league team in an area like Featherstone, you could potentially grow it into whatever you wanted it to be. It could one day if Featherstone became the top rugby league club in the world, however it decides to do that, become a the, the, the economy around it would revive itself. Businesses would come in, all the rest of it. People weren't ready at that point to give up the dream that these areas could be revived. So Paris is sort of the anti that. You know, a lot of people looked at Paris and sort of thought, well, why can't we invest that money in areas like Featherstone and Castleford and Wakefield and Salford? So that we, they are the elite of the game instead of somewhere like Paris, which has already got the sort of infrastructure. It's got the commercial businesses around it, the rest of it. Why does rugby league need to that? Now, the flip side of that is that people like Maurice Lindsay would say, we need to be accessing markets that are already huge. Paris being one of them. Paris being an area that is going to be a, you know, France, for, you know, Britain, for, to give it the political context, Britain joins the single market, we're very close to EU, we're almost, we're, there's talk of us joining the euro currency, the idea of Britain and France being um, interlinked and, you know, the build a channel tunnel, all the rest of it, having a club in Paris makes total sense. London and Paris makes total sense. But it's just the sort of way that it's done and the way that it's sort of, you know, tried to fast track through with 22 Australian players and free tickets and all the story. I know you've done it on another podcast. It was, you know, destined to fail. Um, and obviously it never really got off the ground and within two years they're completely gone. And so this is this is a, a tangent. It's just something I thought of and it's probably too big a question 
for this interview. But I don't know. I was just thinking about what you said about Featherston and this belief in in the the restoration of the town potentially through rugby league. And going back to you know near the start where you mentioned what's happened with the the political landscape in the north and the old Labour people switching camps. Like, how much of that do you think is comes down to the failure of that promise and the failure to revive these towns? I think it's a really good point because, so for example, if you look at somewhere like Featherston, for example, you ha- who, who, who we do look at in Hope and Glory, your minor strike happens to, uh, no, actually, Featherston Rovers win the Challenge Cup in 1983, 40 years ago this year. The last side to do it with a total English crop of players, and many of them worked down the pits and were uh, working in the community. You know, by 84, 85, there's Australians there. It's a very different competition. Within six months of them winning that Challenge Cup, the miners in that community, so Featherston for the Australian listeners, is a pit town or pit village. The The only huge industry, there are other industries around it and obviously other jobs and shops and hairdressers and the rest of it, but the main thing that it's famous for is its coal mining industry. And it had a huge pit, um, Acton Colliery, that was, um, you know, where the majority of the people in that community had worked and had worked for generations. After they win the Challenge Cup in 83, six months, six months down the track, they're on strike. They go on strike for a year. That pit never opens again. Never opens. You know, coal is never taken from that ground again. And that begins a process of sort of deindustrialization, the changes in community. People, you know, end up being long-term unemployed. Some of them take, get jobs as taxi drivers. Some of them set up their own businesses, window cleaning. Some of them move to Wakefield to become miners. It breaks up that Featherston community that had been there. And the thing about Featherston as a club was it had always been renowned for its coal mining industry and the fact that the players were miners themselves. So once Featherston had lost its pits and it starts to lose its players who were from that it sort of goes in a tr- it, it sort of goes downhill quite fast but in the mid 90s in the early 90s featherston are still a major club that can produce players like paul newlove ikram butt was playing there others as well and Derek fox who was playing for great britain so there was nothing to suggest in 90 and they got to a challenge cup semi-final a month before the mergers are put on the table so it's not as if it was the most obvious thing in the world that Featherston should cease to exist. But what Maurice Lindsay and others were looking at was like, well, Featherston is not an area that is going to revive itself anytime soon. And if we want to create a top-tier Premier League, which is Wigan, St. Helens, Bradford, whoever, Featherston are not part of it. They have nothing to bring to the table economically. They might have the history. I mean, even look up, the, we're going, maybe going off, topic from the political aspect here but look at Keith Lee Cougars for example they'd done all the right things off the field they'd revolutionized the club you know brought in mascots brought in WWF style marketing turned it from a club that was about to die into one that had four or five thousand supporters Lindsay and the other people refused to let them into Super League you're not big enough you're not going to be you're not part got a big enough marketplace for this new Super League. And that's probably where it comes into the sort of World Cup challenges that the people running the British game wanted them to be on a level with the Australian clubs. And Featherston and Keithley, for pure reasons of geography, not their skill, not the of, of, of marketing or anything else of that, 
they were never going to be able to compete with that. So obviously there was a resentment with the people of them clubs that they were being written off in a way that they had been by the Tory government and Thatcherism and, and all the things that had come before that. There was a feeling that, and that sort of comes out in that divide um, in 1995, that you've taken everything else away and now you're taking my rugby league club. In the intervening period, I think there's, there's, there's such a lot that's happened, but those areas that sort of voted leave and move from being traditional Labour voting families into Conservatives. And there's, there's sort of evidence now that they're going to shift back again at the next election because of all the problems that have happened. But culturally, they are different than, you know, people who live in London and the cities. There's a sort of different uh, mindset, as there will be in Australia as well, right? It's sort of... it it it, it, it there's so, It's such a big question. But there is obviously a feeling that rugby league towns have not recovered um, in a way that they thought they would. Some of that changed in the early 2000s, you know, when Labour in power and before the financial crash, there was optimism that they could revive these areas. But a lot of talk in Britain now about the death of the high street, left behind towns, you know, drug problems and the rest of it. It sort of does revolve around those rugby league areas and that sort of inequality that's been created over this period that we're talking about. So, yeah, that that is a live issue still. It's a fascinating issue that I would love to talk about all night, but I, I think we should probably get back to rugby league. But yeah, we'll do another uh, podcast yeah. on, on British politics for the for the real <laughs> hardcore listeners of Rugby League Digest. Um, yeah, oh, it's, it's it's really really interesting. But back to nineteen ninety seven, out of the World Club Challenge, and it's not just a reaction to the World Club Challenge, but you had the Leiden report, which on our chapter we viewed quite cynically, and maybe it's just Andy and I scarred by the endless list of reports that were commissioned and then never acted upon both in Australia and in England. But can, can you talk a bit about this report and, you know, why it was there and what it achieved? I think this is, this is a, this is a perfect, um, that, that, that your analysis was perfect. This period, 1990 to 1997 longer, there's so many reports flying around. It's like, if in doubt, Let's just write a report, frame yep. the future. I think at the end of 1997, KPMG do a report on the state of the game. I don't know if you've come across that. And they basically, that's to basically look at the debt levels of the club, clubs and the debts, even with the Murdoch money. There's something ludicrous like £30 million, even though there's £87 million within the game. There's now £30 million worth of debt. Joe Lydon was, um, you know, a great player, uh, you know, for Great Britain and uh, Widnes and Wigan in the 1980s. And in the 1990s, he was basically seen as a future administrator for the game because he played the game, but he was also, you know, which was very rare at the time, not so rare th- these days. He was actually an educated professional, as in he'd been to university. Um, and, and do- I think he did like a sports science degree, as did people like Phil Clark and others. And that was sort of rarity. So when he retired, there was a real feeling that, he could be the person, to, by Morris Lindsay believed anyway, to sort of take the game forward. And yeah, he was basically tasked with, you know, writing this report that was not meant to be, you know, a lengthy uh, report on the future of the game, but just a sort of how do we recover from this World Cup challenge situation. Um, I can't actually remember what came out of it in the end, but I'm going to imagine that it probably didn't do anything. I mean, if anyone if anyone who's listening can remember what the Leiden report did, 
Um, I, 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 I sort of have no memory memory of it. And looking through the sort of books um, before this podcast, I can't see any anywhere that it was implemented. The only thing was that, that they were also looking to do at the time was they were basically sort of looking to move towards that playoff system, which happens the year after. So the sort that that was another report that was sort of looked into and framing the future 2.0, which looked at um, you know the amalgamations. I think the Leiden report was more to do with the sort of playing standards on the field and how we, you know, sort of Phil Lard, a coaching director. How do we match the Australians? But like you say, there's so many reports happening at this time. You know, the consultants probably saw there's 87 million on the table and they they probably did quite well out of this period. Yeah, yeah, and that that report I. When we were looking at the the 1982 Kangaroo Tour and all, all the all the fallout from that, you you basically had the exact same conclusions as what Joe Lydon came up with 15 years later, and it's Australians are better resourced and and better skilled, and there's more money and all of these things that I, I don't know why you need a report when anyone with any association of rugby league could tell you that. I suppose that's, this goes into, and there's lots of debates about what should have happened with the Murdoch money when it came through. A lot of it got spent on like Australian players. Um, coming, so I think, I think there was a report done at the start of 1997, for example, that said a third of the whole Super League roster was Australian players or people from, you know, the NRL, which is incredible. And the amount of cost that would have had in sort of bringing them over and housing them and, you know, and an agent saw the fact that there was a lot of opportunities to make money out of it. There was there was obviously money put into some ground repair. There was money spent on Paris, but essentially that money that was there essentially disappears from in the game by the time of the next Sky deal. Um, and it was not it was not spent as it hasn't been in Australia. We sort of found out during COVID to sort of invest and you know build a a, a, a resource that could be tapped in for generations or, you know, there was no sort of ring fence money for that clubs had to do X, Y, Z with it. They were sort of given it and allowed to sort of do whatever they wanted. Um, uh, you know, and some spent it well, some didn't. But, I mean, it's a, it's a hypothetical question, but even if you had the, 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 all the money in the world, would you ever have enough people playing the game in England to match Australia? It's impossible. You know, we're just not, it's never going to be as popular in England as it is in Australia um, for, for very obvious, all the various reasons that we know about. So it's sort of an unfair comparison. What is weird is that we've sort of, and this is sort of going into some of the themes of the book, is that we've lost that kangaroo tour in the ashes. And for British Rugby League, it feels completely lost without that thing to aspire to every four years. They come over here every two years we go over there. Just to test the metal, where are we at now in the game when we play Australia? And if you get humiliated, there's nothing like that as a motivation for a sport to pin down, right, so that's where we need to be in two years' time. In 1982, of course, the game needs to find a way to match the Australian standards. And it starts to do it off the field first. It you know brings in Phil Lard as a coaching director. Maurice Lindsay at Wigan, Wigan begins to copy some of the marketing techniques. Players come over. 1986 Kangaroo Tour. Australia still batter Great Britain. They get nowhere near them again. But there's a sense that they've got things right off the field. At some point, it's going to filter down to the players and we're going to compete. And 1988, we win one game. 1990 at Wembley, the first Ashes Test. You can 
conceivably say that on that game, on that day, which is actually into British Rugby League history, Great Britain were better than Australia on the, you know, we didn't win by luck or injuries or referees. They were the better team. And that is quite a remarkable turnaround in eight years when you actually watch those three 1982 tests were, it is like two people, I think someone said at the time, it's like two teams playing different sports. That was all to, so we've lost that now in this country. We, We had a World Cup in England and didn't play Australia. I find that utterly ridiculous that the Rugby League World Cup, Australia never come to the UK anymore. And we had them here and we didn't find a way to play them. Now yeah. that's to do with England losing the semi-final. But you'd have thought, wow, well, let's have the opening game, England-Australia. Yeah. Let's see where these two teams are at. Let's generate, you know, the Ashes is due to start. I don't want to time date your podcast, but the Ashes is due to start today. That's the rivalry that people in this country absolutely love. We love England-Australia for all the reasons. Thing. And to lose that from, from this, potentially because of the Super League, you know, that was the, re- you know, when we went to summer, Arthurson said, you know, you'll never have a kangaroo tour like what you had previously. It's gone. And Lindsay was like, well, that's fine. We don't need it anymore. But I think we lost a lot when we lost that kangaroo tour. And yeah, that that's that's where we're at. I think that's that's the huge significant loss of this period. Without that, how does the British Rugby League test itself against the NRL? Okay, we can say people like Dom Young playing the NRL and, you, you know, George Williams has gone over there and they're great English players over there. But it doesn't mean anything to British people who love rugby league. We want to see us one day beat Australia again and, and we just, there's no mechanism to do that at the moment. Yeah. Um, England, none for 18, by the way, Anthony. Just just had to check when you mentioned that. <laughs> um it's it's funny thinking of you, you mentioned Arthurson and he was you know devastated by the loss of of those kangaroo tours and when Annie and I have have discussed it we sort of thought thought of them as somewhat of anachronism and rugby league was going a different way but I mean it's clear from what you said that something really foundational and, and fundamental to rugby league was seven when this era ended well it carried on for a little bit afterwards didn't it there's a there's another yeah. great britain australia series in 1997 uh and again in 2001 and again in 2003 and then there's a, yeah. the weird mid-season test match in 2002 where great britain get battered and andrew johns famously said i don't even need to have a shower you know and that sort of and and that was another wake up <laughs> that was another wake up call for the british game so embarrassed by that, that we need to do something about it. And there's always these sort of moments. After this, just before we go back to talking about the kangaroo tour, the World Cup happens this year. England get to a semi-final at home, don't win. There hasn't been a single... I mean, there has been a a small investigation into whether Sean Wayne should stay on as coach. Where's the debate about where British Rugby League is at? Where's the debate about how we're going to one day match the Australians? Where's the debate about what's happening to International Rugby League? Where's the debate about can we revive the England team in the way that the Great Britain team? Essentially, we've just forgotten about International Rugby League in this country and obviously Australia. That's a whole different uh, podcast in itself about where they're at with the international game. The Kangaroo Tours were our big selling point to the rest of the country. Um, They weren't at the beginning of the 1980s. 1982 um, was a, a real nadir, not just in terms of well, it wasn't an idea. It was an idea in terms of the standards, uh, the difference in class. But what happened over that tour 
was that the skill level of the Australian players just generated such interest from British people who had to go and see them play. And you, you the stories of the time of like Ray French, which I recount in the book, going around the country as a teacher, and he was he was a teacher and he would take teams to play, you know, down south, and they'd all be coming up to him afterwards and being like, What are the who are these invincibles? What are they? What are they doing? And rugby union coaches were secretly going watching them and learning from what they did. And there was such an interest in that, even though we got Great Britain got humiliated, they hadn't seen the skill levels and the speed and the excitement that they, they saw there's a journalist called Paul Fitzpatrick who was the Guardian writer and he'd come to Rugby League quite late. You know, he'd started it, uh, he was a cricket correspondent and then he started watching Rugby League in the 1970s and then he was just like, I'd never seen Rugby League played like this before. This was a dream of what British Rugby League could be and over the course of the period from 82 to 1995, that's the aim. It's developing that high-intensity, top-level, um, competitive uh, game between Great Britain and Australia. You have it in 86. On the field, we're not as competitive, but we take the game to Old Trafford because what we want to do is give the kangaroos the prestige that they deserve and the British sports media, who don't normally cover rugby league, all descend on Old Trafford to write about it. The sports editors, and you see these reports that are like, I've never watched a rugby league game in my life, but I need to see these kangaroos. And they're amazing. By 1990, so 88, you know, there's Great Britain's uh, third test win in Sydney. And this is probably explaining the difference between British culture and Australian culture in terms of sporting terms. The series was over. Australia had won the Ashes. The third test at Sydney in 1988. Because Great Britain had so many injuries and managed to win, the mythology around, mythology around Dunkirk spirit, Rockshrift, all this sort of stuff, absolutely captivates the British public. It becomes the lead story on the 10 o'clock news. The back pages of the papers, the rugby union writers are like, British success story. This is absolutely fantastic. I mean, it was a dead rubber for, for, for to all intents and purposes. But the idea that they'd done this and they'd broken the duck and they'd done it with injured players was fantastic, which leads into the 1990 series. The ambition of the game is, let's take it to Wembley. You know, let's take the first test to Wembley. And they break the ashes, they break the crowd. They break the ashes record for a crowd. The second test at Old Trafford, which we, you know, I'm sure listeners know about, one of the greatest tests of all time. Lots of discussion about what would have happened had Great Britain won that game and won the ashes at the point where it was the most popular it ever been in Britain. Who knows? But that was all due to the kangaroos. It was all due to the Australian influence on the sport. And we've completely lost it. It's bizarre that at a time when the NRL is more popular than it's ever been in Britain, the kangaroos don't exist in anyone's mind. And when they came over to play in the World Cup in, you know, last winter, no one was interested in watching them. And it was sad, you know, I mean, they weren't playing great teams, but they go to Coventry, there's no one really there. Because these players are not known to the British public, but Mal Meninga, Brett Kenny and all them, the household names, certainly within rugby league communities and quite wide as well. So that's the influence that, that the Kangaroo Tour has. Now, could it have survived? Probably not in the sort of summer to summer era. Once rugby league in Britain goes to summer, how can you have three-month Kangaroo Tours? You know, it's not possible. Yeah. Um, and also, you know, the way that the Australian, you know, game exploded and the financial revenue that came in, it basically wasn't economically viable to do it anymore. But had a three-game series continued and we'd never got rid of it and we had it every two years, 
I think British Rugby League would be in a much better position now yeah. had that happened for lots of reasons we've discussed. Um, just to, this, this is a, a minor point, but just to kind of get us to the, get us to the 25 years since Super League, in that Leiden report, there was a lot of talk about underperforming Aussies and this glut of uh, Australian players who, who were just rubbish, basically. And I, I'm sure a lot of that was born out of the mystique of 1982 and everything that had happened since. Um, then you get the, the end of the, the Super League war in Australia and rationalisation, and suddenly English Rugby League is getting some players in their prime and still getting some duds, but um, you know definitely some top talent was going over to England again. Where do you put the... Uh, and in that Leiden report, a lot of, or, or a fair amount of blame was put on the over-reliance on Australian talent at the expense of developing English players. How much of that do you think had an influence on the progression of Super League? And, you know, is it a net positive or, or negative having, you know, all this Australian talent going over? It's an interesting one because there was obviously not enough quality British players in that period to sustain a global, you know, world league that was being talked about. You know, there was, there was you got to, if you strip it back to 97, there was an optimism within the British game that the World Club Challenge was going to be a permanent fixture within the two competitions. A Champions League style, you know, tournament. Um, and, and so it made total sense, really, for those teams to go out and try and recruit the best talented Australians. Because, you know, if you were a club like Paris Saint-Germain, where were they, where were they going to get? They were not going to be able to find 22 English players to compete in the Super League. Whereas a lot of Australian, let's call them journeymen, let's call them experienced, whatever, they were obviously going to easily slot in and fill that. Now, you could look at a team like Catalans, for example, in 2006, who did a similar thing. They got in people like Stacey Jones. Uh, later on, they got in people like Todd Carney, Willie Mason. How, how and, and I suppose the, the theory is, is that if you bring in these experienced Australian players, They'll not only lay the foundations in terms of culture and standards, uh, they'll also allow you slowly over time to develop your pathways, your young players, all the rest of it. In 1997, it wasn't clear whether, you know, how you were going to develop those young British players. There was not that, there was more money focused on the top level of marketing and taking this World Cup challenge than there was on the grassroots of the game. That obviously changes as we get into the next century and we bring in quotas and there's a period where it's again the top line Australian players coming over like Steve Renoff, Jamie Lyon, Brett Dallas, Alfie Langer. They're older, but they're all established sort of Australian top players because the pound pound is strong to the dollar and all the rest of it. That essentially took Super League to probably one of its most competitive and, you know, it was probably the period where there was most profile of media in the game when those Australians were here. Whether that was because of the Australians or whether it was because of um, just a general buzz around the game, I don't know. But I think certainly the, there was a belief, like you say, within the Leiden report that the Australians... But just by being Australian, are better than the British players, and that if you're going to sort of develop standards in this country, you start by bringing in the Australian players, and then you move on from that afterwards. 
I don't know. We've 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 had so many peaks and valleys just over the course of this conversation. And you mentioned rugby league on a real high in the in the early two thousands, and and now I think it's fair to say it's not. But what what's the way back? Just just to round this all out, I think we should bring back the World Cup challenge. Um, no, <laughs> do you imagine that now? Well, do 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 people in Sydney want to and Cronulla want to watch them play against Lee and Salford? Who knows? Um, I, I don't know. This is the thing. I mean, the the book is sort of looking at a period where there was unbelievable optimism within the game, despite all the hardship that had happened around it. That rugby league was such a good sport to watch that if only you marketed it properly, it would succeed. Things that have happened in the the the, the period since ninety seven, you know, the growth of the Premier League, for example, in this country and abroad. It's just been, it's just all consumed everything. So, like, look at the media, for example, right? In 97, the media is starting to take rugby league seriously. It's got top-line journalists such as, like, Chris Irvine and Dave Hadfield who are writing really good long reads about players, philosophy, ideas around the game. Every day in the Independent of the Times, there is rugby league news stories. The Sun newspaper creates a four-page pullout within the middle of the newspaper about rugby league. I mean, it gets rid of it pretty quickly when it realises that no one's interested in it. But the opportunities and the platform, and and that's the thing about 97, was it was that moment in time, you know, where you were just starting to get things like the internet and you were just starting to get new business ideas. And it seemed as if there was a potential for growth and no one knew where it was going to land. And, um, you know, we probably need another podcast to sort of actually explore what went wrong in the 25 years after 97 to put it where it is now. And the, there are lots of problems that have happened. But fundamentally, it has remained only popular in the areas that it was in 1997. We've lost people along the way. You know, areas like Workington, Oldham, Sheffield have been replaced by clubs like Lee, Salford, um, you know, the whole two teams are back, they survived, they, you know, survived an amalgamation. But in reality, there hasn't really been a massive change in the support in that intervening period. And there is no longer an optimism, I would say, within most rugby league people that it's going to get better anytime soon. In 97, there's lots of politics happening and all the stories we talk about and the infighting and the influence of Maurice Lindsay. But everybody believes that the sport is on an upward trajectory. It's the battle to how it can do that. For example, Maurice Lindsay, um, which we haven't really spoken about, um, gets criticised a lot in this period for for being like a spin master. You know, he was sort of, this is the rise of political spin. Sorts of people start to notice this more with New Labour in ninety seven when they win. They're trying to control the media narrative, and Maurice Lindsay is essentially doing things like saying the World Club Challenge is a success, and the journalists are saying it is not a success. Whatever you want to say about it, it is not a success as you hoped. And he just flat out denies it. You know, he sort of just spins it and then he changes it. Well, it wasn't a success, but it's going to be better for the long term. And that sort of that sort of um, approach starts to wear thin ju- during this period because the mythology around Lindsay was that he was a great businessman and that he was a, that he sort of self-mythologized himself. He was a great businessman. He was a great negotiator. He could publicize the game and he could do all that when he was at Wigan. He was the master at the media. And even in 97 as well, he is still the subject of huge media profiles 
that no other administrator would be, you know, like double pages. We talk about some newspaper, but that essentially creates a sort of rift between him and the rest of the game. And this is what's been played out across 1997. And it never really got a clear vision strategy for what that money, that, that 87 million pound was for, you know, soon after 1998 Gates had come along, then they try more expansion. Then there's the playoffs. Then there's other things, all this sort of happens, but you know, Individual clubs do great things like Bradford. They're a sort of club that take on the Super League idea, but they're one of the only ones that do it. And you sort of look back and think, why wasn't everybody embracing this opportunity to be, you know, major sports players? They had the resources. They sort of blew it, really. That was a moment where Rugby League could have... It may, it would not have been as big as football, but it could have put the foundations for a new era. Would, would, is that because the mergers didn't happen potentially? You know, that would have been a year zero for the sport. It would have been completely new. But how would people have responded to that? We don't know. It's one of the like, great unknown questions about British Rugby League. And and again, I, I, for such two different, uh, you know, contrasting fortunes in Rugby League, I think England and Australian Rugby League are, are joined by this repeated catching lightning in a bottle, whether it's the Super League money, whether it's Tina Turner, whether it's poker machines in licensed clubs, and then somehow squandering it and working out how we're going to get it back. So all we can hope for is is another lightning bolt catching it, and, and this time it's going to be the one, and, and we're going to make good. So Well, the, the faith now, for all the sort of said, I've said pessimism about the game, that is my view and my view of where I think Rugby League is at and where people are at. But IMG, for example, have come in, they've said opportunities for this sport we think it can go big we've not seen anything from them yet we've seen them bit of structural organization we want to get rid of relegation it's going to be licensing the big ideas where they're going to take the sport have they got them we may be talking in seven years time when they are supposed to be uh, coming towards the end of the reimagining the rugby league about a new world cup championship a new international game who knows i very much highly doubt it cynical me I want to get to a point again where I can buy Super League milk in the Tesco's <laughs> and get my stickers again that'll be a symbol of, 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 of success for Rugby League if we, I, I don't even know if kids collect stickers these days but uh, if they do there should be a, a Rugby League one but yeah so there is always possibility you know that in Rugby League that as we wouldn't be sat here talking about it if we didn't think that we could you know make this sport into the, the sort of national game in England that we that we think it deserves and get it the media profile and get it the celebrity and make its players millionaires. I think everybody wants that to happen. It's just we're still, we're just stuck at the minute without an idea of how we do it in this really competitive sports marketplace. You look at someone like Cricket and the Ashes and the rest of it, they've got ideas like the 100, you know, they've got these rivalries. They're doing things. Rugby League in in Britain is doing nothing for the to, to, to attract the young person, to attract the new people. IMG, if, if anyone from IMG is listening to this, I hope you've got the ideas to do it. You know, we'll back you up. Okay. We'll, we'll, we'll end on this, Anthony. We'll end on a promise. Seven years' time, Wembley Stadium for the final of the, the Reborn World Club Challenge. I will be there with you to, to lay the first ceremonial sticker in your book, and, and we will toast the, the new era of rugby league. That, yeah. <laughs> Like, that sounds absolutely brilliant. We'll sign up for that. Um, and, and yeah, I, I could talk to you all night. I would love to, to go through uh, your book in, in a couple of months' time and, and have another chat. I mean, I feel like I've plugged it quite a lot to, in, in here. 
Um, so, you know, you've given me the opportunity to give first plug exclusively yeah. to yourself, which is I'm very happy to do. Uh, but yeah, just, you know, just from a personal perspective, absolutely love the podcast. I think this, I do think the 1997 era is one of the most fascinating in the World Cup Challenge. You know, it's been so fun to revisit it, you know, with your podcast and sort of reading about it. It's a crazy, crazy, crazy time in rugby league yeah. history. Uh, and that's just richness of characters and players and just the amount of weird things that were happening. Yeah, but absolute pleasure to debrief it with you. Uh, likewise. So Hope and Glory, Rugby League in Thatcher's Britain will be out uh, in July and uh, we can't wait. And um, this was this was such a great chat as always, Anthony. So thank you so much. And uh, let's go Australia in the ashes. So I'm, I'm going to go, I'm at Edge Baston this week for the next two uh, for the Sunday and Monday. So I'll be there. Oh, With yeah. basketball, though, we might have already beat you. And, uh, you know, and I'll be <laughs> devastated about that. But I don't, I, that, that, cut that out, because that's probably going to come back to haunt me. <laughs> all right. Well, all the best, Anthony. Yeah. Nice one. See you again. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.